Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. And let me just introduce myself for those that I don't know. My name is Matt Morton, one of the pastors here. Some of you I know, some of you I don't. Um, Jacob Smith is usually the guy that's in here. Uh, You usually can see him better, right? He's about a foot taller than I am. Uh, He had to go out of town. He had a death in the family. So you guys can be praying for him uh, as he travels there, as he ministers to his family and, and comes back later this week. Uh, so it's a privilege to be here. Uh, I was the college pastor here for a while, uh, and it's been nine months since I've been back in this room preaching, and so it's just an honor to be here and to be with you guys. So we're going to be in Second Samuel 11. We're going to continue with the life of David, uh, and I'm going to read this whole chapter before we pray because I want to get really a sense of this whole story before we dive into it and talk about uh, what the Lord, I think, would have to say to us from this passage. So Second Samuel 11 starting in verse 1. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him and he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why'd you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? 
Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and we came out again and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of your king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it and so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, as we just sang, we have no other king but Jesus. We have no other God besides you. Father, as we sing also, we know that you love us. Your love is greater than we can imagine. And every person in this room stands before you a sinner. I pray that as we look at your word, we would see how to avoid the type of spiritual disaster that we see in this passage. Father, I pray we would see where restoration comes from and forgiveness comes from. We thank you that in Jesus, we know that you love us as we are in our sin, despite our sin, you gave us life. I pray that your word would convict and change us this morning. I pray we would understand it. Father, I pray open our minds, remove distractions. I pray that you would move in our hearts, that we would submit, remove our rebellion and our fear and all those things that keep us from wanting to obey you and then empower our hands and our feet for your service. We thank you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know a lot of you have been watching the Winter Olympics. Uh, They end today. Uh, I'll admit I'm a big Olympics fan. I like the Winter Olympics, like the Summer Olympics. All of the sports are interesting to me. I'll I'll confess I even watched the ice dancing. Uh, I know I'm not the only guy in here that watched it. I'm not going to go for a show of hands, but uh, later I'll just ask you, so how'd you like the twizzles? And you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you guys watched it, some of you didn't. Some of you like the skiing or the speed skating or whatever it may be. Uh, I love to watch all of these athletes who for four years have been training and planning and preparing for this moment. It's a lot different from like an NFL player or an NBA player or whatever, where they are on every night or most of the nights of the year and they're very visible. These Olympians train in relative obscurity for a long time before they have their moment in the spotlight. So it's always fascinating to me. One of the more interesting athletes to me over the last several Winter Olympics has been Bodie Miller. Some of you watched Bodie Miller this year. He won a bronze in one of his skiing events. He's an alpine skier, American alpine skier. 2010, I think he won three medals. He won one of each color. 2002, he won at least a couple of medals. Uh, What was interesting to me, though, about Bodie Miller is following the trajectory of his career... If you look right there in the middle of his Olympic career in 2006, you'll find no medals. Uh, And it was interesting, uh, leading up to the 2006 Olympics, Bodie Miller was on all these ads, and he was hyped to a great degree. He was participating in five events in alpine skiing, and they predicted he would win five medals. Showed up at the 2006 Olympics, and he won zero. Two of his events, I think he didn't uh, even finish the race. 
a third one he was disqualified, and then the two that he actually finished, he didn't medal. And it was interesting, when they interviewed him, he consistently seemed not to care. Like, you know, I don't really care. And in fact, later, after the Olympics, one of the reporters asked him, well, how do you feel about your Olympic performance? Are you disappointed? And he actually said, nah, I'm not really that disappointed. And he said, I got to party and socialize at an Olympic level. And I thought later, what, what a thing to tell your kids and grandkids one day, right? I had a shot to win five medals, and I, I got to party and socialize, man, at an Olympic level. That's, that's amazing. And as I watched those Olympics transpire, the thing that kept coming into my mind was, how does that happen? Uh, how does a guy with so much potential, so much talent, end up really with a huge goose egg? Big Olympic failure. Uh, And it became apparent that the way that it happened was that he established patterns in his training, patterns in his schedule that were detrimental to winning a medal. Instead of training, instead of being disciplined, he was out partying. And if that pattern continues long enough, it's not like he showed up at the Olympics and said, you know what, today I'm going to miss some events, I'm going to be disqualified. I think he showed up wanting to medal, but the patterns he had set caused this huge cataclysmic failure. And the reason I share that is because I think that kind of thing often happens to people in the spiritual life. I'm not super old, but I'm old enough to have seen many of my friends in ministry, many of my friends who are Christian leaders, many people that I knew in college when I sat in your chair who started well and you would look at their life and you'd say, man, this guy or this girl has all of this potential. They're gifted. They're trying to walk with the Lord. They're engaged in the church. They're going to do great things for the kingdom of God. And yet they hit 25, 30, 35, 40, and they bomb out. And so you hear a story about a pastor who committed adultery or a leader who stole money from the church, or even more frequently, somebody just kind of drifts away. I can't tell you the number of friends now that I have that just say, yeah, I just either don't believe the whole Jesus thing anymore, or they're just not really living it. And as sad as it is, if the statistics are correct, that'll be some of you in this room. You start well, but you won't finish. And one day there may be this huge disaster and everybody looks and, sit and says, what happened to that guy or that girl? How did that happen? I don't think you wake up one morning and say, yeah, today I'm going to wreck my family. Today I'm going to destroy my career. Today I'm going to walk away from Jesus. But instead what happens, much like we saw in 2006 with Bodie Miller, is you set patterns and habits starting right now that affect the course of your life. You can set negative patterns and habits. You can set ones that draw you closer to Jesus. And what we see in the life of David, as you guys have been walking through the life of David, what you see with David is uh, he in many ways is godlier, more gifted, closer to God than all of us in this room. He is called a man after God's own heart. David loves God deeply and God loves him deeply. We have all of these psalms that are these beautiful songs that we still refer to and sing and take comfort in and use to worship God that he wrote because he had this passion for God. Yet we also see a guy at a very critical point in his life isn't ready for temptation that he has set patterns in his life that allow him to be susceptible to temptation. And I think you and I are not that much different. If you think you're not susceptible 
to temptation, to lust, to greed, to pride, to gossip, to anger, to violence, whatever it may be. If you think you're not susceptible, you're deceiving yourself. And David gets to this place where he set these patterns over time that lead to this seemingly cataclysmic failure. And we look and we go, how is this possible? in the life of a guy like David? Is it just an anomaly? Is it that David just wakes up one day and says, I'm going to do this thing and destroy the family of Bathsheba and Uriah and create chaos and pain for my family for generations to come and sin against God? No, it's not what happens. And as we look at his life and as we look at this incident, here's what I really want us to take away. Is that every single one of us, at every single moment, we're choosing to draw closer to Jesus or further away. This isn't a sermon, actually, about morality. This isn't going to be a sermon about how to be a good kid or a good boy or girl. Instead, what this is is that when you and I lose sight of the fact that God loves us more than anything else in the world and that knowing Jesus is better, as we just sang, better than all of the temptation that sin offers. When we lose sight of that, we're susceptible to temptation and sin. And yet the good news is that even in the midst of that, there's a hope for restoration. Even though there are even often irreversible consequences, there's the hope of restoration. And what I want to take away from David's life is to say, first of all, how can I steer clear of this kind of disaster? And secondly, some of you find yourselves even right now in this sort of spiritual disaster zone. You know it. You're sitting here and you say, yeah, I know what I did last night. I know what I did this week. I know where I'm headed. I know the temptations I'm struggling with. And you've never told anybody. And you're living in this red zone. Maybe you've already crossed over into disaster. And the message from the life of David is even now there's hope through Jesus' love. So we're going to look at the life of David, see how this disaster happens, how to avoid it, and where to find restoration. Because the life of David is is a a testimony to James chapter 1. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We're going to see that in David's life. So we're going to come back here to 2 Samuel chapter 11. The first thing we're going to see is this. Spiritual disaster comes from spiritual neglect. Look again at verses 1 through 4. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. All right, let me pause here. There's a couple things you need to know that are going on in David's life. All right, first of all, David at this point already has three wives. He has three wives. One is named Michal, then he has Abigail, and he has Ahinoam. Now that is in direct contradiction to God's command that kings not multiply or collect wives. Deuteronomy 17, 17. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now God had given this command to the kings, not because God is saying, I don't want the kings to have fun, not because God is saying, I don't like sex, not for any of those reasons, but because God knew that as a king, as a leader of the people, you need to model what it is like to say, I trust in God to provide all my needs. And when I begin to collect things, whether it's wives, whether it's gold, whether it's silver, when I look around and I say, what God has given me is not enough, and I'm going to hoard, and I'm going to collect, and I'm going to take what I think I need, you're demonstrating a lack of trust in God, and that will turn your heart away. And God gives the king this command 
for his own good and the good of the people. And yet David is in a place where he's started collecting wives. Right? Some of us take that attitude in our hearts. We say that maybe what God has given isn't quite enough. Right? So I walk through the mall or wherever it is you go to shop. And you say, ah, I can't afford that shirt, that sweater, whatever it is. I'll just pull out the credit card. And over time, you do that over and over and over again. And you never wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to bankrupt my family with credit card debt. It starts with an attitude of discontent. Or you sit in your room and you say, I'm lonely. God hasn't given me a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is. I'll turn on the computer. Because I can't trust God to meet my needs. And that's where David finds himself. And so we hit this point, the narrator says, it's the springtime, the kings go out to war. In other words, this is what David ought to be doing, but instead of going out to war, he is at home, resting in his bed. And so there's all these warning signs leading up to this disaster. He's in bed all day. In fact, it says when evening comes, he gets out of bed. Some of you are like, yeah, that was my day yesterday, right? (laughs) Slept in, got up about five o'clock, you know, whatever. That's David's life right now. And his curiosity and his laziness and his lack of focus on God's purpose for his life lead him to go up to the roof and he just kind of starts strolling around. Now, you got to know, the palace in Jerusalem was probably the highest point in the city. And David is walking around and it's not that Bathsheba is trying to catch anybody's eye necessarily. Uh, Back then, they didn't have running water or private showers necessarily. They'd go out into a courtyard outside their house and it probably wasn't enclosed, maybe private courtyard, but it wouldn't have had a roof. But David can see it all from where he is and he's looking around and he spots her. And everything we see in David's life leads up to this catastrophe and David has made himself open to it. Uh, Those of you who have cars, you know that uh, if you don't take care of the car, eventually you'll start getting warning lights, right? I remember when I was in uh, seminary, I didn't have a whole lot of money, and uh, I drove this old 1991, like, Toyota Tercel, which is a car, I think, wisely they stopped making, right? They don't make it anymore uh, because it wasn't the best car, and uh, it had, it began to develop these problems, and here was my rationale, was I would drive this car around, and I knew it needed an oil change, I go two, three, four thousand miles past the oil change mark, uh, but I, I'd go, you know what, I just can't afford the 40 bucks that it's going to cost for me to go get the oil changed. Now, it never crossed my mind that trying to save 40 bucks over here could cost me like 3,000 in a year or two. And in fact, that's what happened. I was on my way from Amarillo back to Dallas. I'd gone to a wedding and all of a sudden the whole engine just exploded basically, right? Smoke starts coming up, can't drive anymore, right? I had pushed this thing to the limit. It had gotten to where it it shook like you were on a horse and buggy when you drove this thing around, right? The cylinders were dying, four-cylinder car, only two of them worked. Finally, the engine just died on me. I look back and I think, you know, a little bit of maintenance probably would have prevented that. Paying attention to those lights that said check engine, right, might have prevented that. David ignores those sort of signals. Goes outside, looks around, sees Bathsheba. And because he's been neglecting his walk with God, this temptation strikes and he's not prepared for it. So he, out of curiosity, curiosity that is sinful is often what drives these kind of things. Out of curiosity, he asks about her. That's where it starts. Hey, tell me who this girl is. I like her. 
And the response comes back, well, she's so-and-so, she's the daughter of so-and-so, right, David? Uh, this is someone's daughter. By the way, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite is one of your best soldiers, David. You know Uriah, he's out there fighting with Joab right now. You remember that guy? And all we see is David hears this, it comes back to him, and then the next sequence is very fast. David took her, he collected her, is one way you could translate this. Number four, he lay with her, she cleans up, she goes back home, and she sends word, I'm pregnant. See, it's not as if David woke up and said, I'm, I'm going to mess everything up. Instead, he's created these patterns. Right? Some of you find yourself in that sort of a situation right now. Right? It's not that you're out doing crazy things every weekend. It's just that there is a failure in your life to draw near to Jesus day by day. There's no way that I can guarantee outcomes in my spiritual life 10, 15, 20 years down the road. All I can really do is determine today will I walk with Jesus. Today will I fill my mind with his word. Today will I draw near to community. I think there are two types of habits you need to think about. One are those habits you might need to drive out of your life. And it may be that you're in a situation where you say, look, I know that uh, I have this pornography problem, for example, but I can handle unrestricted internet access in my room. I know I can get a handle on it, right? It's like the person who is trying to diet and you say, you know what? I know that ice cream is a terrible temptation for me, but it's not a problem to keep 12 gallons of bluebell in my freezer, right? And I walk down the ice cream aisle and I look at it lovingly, right? And I hold it to my face, right? But I'm not going to eat it, right? And I'll walk on by. That's what we find with David. And some of you, that's where you are. You're courting sin and you're courting disaster. And so for some, it may be that there are habits that you, you really need to excise from your life. Maybe you need somebody in your life that can say, you know what, the way that you are utilizing technology, the way you're going to a store and looking at stuff you can't afford, the way you're gossiping because you feel jealous about another person because you think God hasn't given you enough, you need to cut that out. Maybe there are structures you need to put in place. Maybe they're as drastic as, I'm going to get rid of the smartphone. I'm not going to go to that store. Let my mom buy my clothes, right? You say, that's crazy. But it may be you're at that place. The other kind of habit, I think, to to consider are those habits that draw us nearer to Jesus, that replace the negative ones. I read a book not too long ago, actually, about habits, and they said, "You, you know what? You really cannot eliminate a habit. Right, so if you've got a problem, you know, picking your ear or whatever, uh, you actually can't eliminate a habit. All you can do is replace it with a better one, right? So they said, instead of sitting there trying to go, don't touch your ear, right? Every time you're tempted to do that, you find something else to do, right? You rub your hands together. You get up, you walk around, you do something else. I think that in the spiritual life, those habits you replace the bad ones with are those that draw me near to God and remind me that he loves me. He loves me. He has given me more than I deserve in Jesus Christ. And so I read his word. And he says, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry. 
that I won't provide for you. I love you. You don't have to worry that there's something you're missing out on because in Jesus Christ, I've given you all of the riches of heaven. You get that? And I find that in the word of God. I find that by coming into this room and worshiping, hearing the word and looking at the men and women next to me. And I say, I need help to walk the spiritual life. And so I find accountability. I find relationships. And I dig into his word and I worship him. And I create these habits in my life that drive me to him. Because spiritual disaster springs from spiritual neglect. And what David finds is that spiritual neglect then leads to a sort of disaster where there are irreversible consequences. So you walk through the rest of the narrative. What happens? David realizes he's got a problem on his hands. Bathsheba is pregnant. Uriah is still out on the battlefield. Right? It's most likely, and, and the, the narrative in, in verses 1 through 4 tells us that uh, all of this happens actually at just the right time for Bathsheba where she's most likely to get pregnant. And when all of it happens, Uriah is gone. And that's why David calls Uriah back quickly because he thinks, I need to get him back here quickly to sleep with his wife so there's at least the possibility that he would believe that this child belongs to him. But he comes back and Uriah says, well, look, everybody else is out fighting David. They're wandering around the fields. The Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, isn't here. How can I go down to my house, eat and drink, sleep with my wife and rest while everybody else is out in the field? That is an indictment of David, whether Uriah intends it that way or not. David gets him drunk, and still, even drunk, Uriah is more righteous than David is sober. He won't go home. So David then resorts to this. He says, Joab, put him right up in the front. Right? The, the captains like Uriah usually would have been placed at the back so that they could lead. He says, put Uriah right up at the front and push him all the way against the wall. So they'll shoot at him and he'll die. And that's what Joab does. And what you see after this happens, it's not only that David's family experiences pain, Bathsheba's family experiences pain, Uriah's family. But there, there is this cycle then that follows all the way through the rest of the narrative that David's kids, interestingly, follow the pattern of violence and sexual immorality that David set. So David's son Amnon actually rapes his half-sister Tamar. Absalom, his other son, then goes in and kills Amnon. David won't allow Absalom back into his house for quite some time, so Absalom institutes a rebellion and hundreds of Israelites die. And the child that Bathsheba is carrying dies as a result of the judgment of God. There's no such thing as a private sin. There are irreversible consequences. One movie that I enjoyed a number of years ago, was called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Some of y'all have seen that movie. George Clooney, kind of a modern-day retelling of uh, Homer's Odyssey. And uh, George Clooney plays this uh, convict who escapes from the chain gang. He's got two convicts with him, Pete and Delmar. And George Clooney's character is named Everett. Now, Pete and Delmar are not the brightest bulbs in the drawer, right? And at one point in the story, if you've seen it, you remember Pete and Delmar find God. They find Jesus and they get baptized in a river. And as they're driving away, Pete and Delmar are trying to make the case to Everett that because they've been redeemed, the authorities can't send them to jail anymore. 
And Everett says, look, you're missing the point, Delmar. He says, even if you're square with the Lord, the state of Mississippi is a little more hard-nosed, right? You still got to go to jail. God forgives you, but there's still consequences for escaping from the chain gang. In David's life, what we will see is there is forgiveness, but there's a pain and a devastation in his family that does not go away. And I don't say that to scare you. Actually, I say that to make this point. Right now, where you are, probably the consequences of your sin are as minimal as they're going to be. What I mean is this. The web of relationships you've developed, the depth of your family, is only going to grow. And one day, you, you probably have a spouse, you probably have kids, you probably have a position in the community, maybe a position in your church, and what happens is that the consequences of your sin are only going to grow. So it's one thing if you're 18, 19, 20, and you struggle with pornography, and that creates problems, of course, in your relationships, creates problems in your walk with God. It's another thing if you're 35 or 40, and this pornography struggle turns into a sexual addiction, and it wrecks your family, your reputation, your job, your career, and I've seen it happen time and again. And I say all that to make this point, that now is the time in your life to start changing these patterns. We're going to talk about how to do that in a minute. I'll never forget hearing a a Christian leader that I respected at one point say, every time you are tempted towards sin, just think about where those consequences will lead. What will this do to my wife, to my kids, to my church, to my friends, to those who trust me? In David's life, there are these irreversible consequences, and that will happen in our lives as well. You say, wow, okay, this is a very depressing message. Where's it heading? And here's where it's heading, is that even in the midst of those irreversible consequences, repentance leads to restoration from God. Repentance leads to restoration. I want to look at 2 Samuel 12 just for a moment. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. 
I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. I read this. It's interesting. Nathan sets up the perfect story for David, doesn't he? It's about a little sheep and this guy loves this little sheep and he hugs it and he sleeps with it, right? Some of you may have had like a little bunny or a sheep that you slept with, right? Uh, David being a shepherd knows what this is like, right? This is where David came from. He was a shepherd in the fields. He loved the sheep and he thinks about this poor shepherd and this one little sheep that he cultivates and this guy goes in and he takes it away and this guy has all these sheep and Nathan says, hey, David, that's you, buddy. And the issue in your heart is you did not trust that God would keep giving and giving and giving and giving. Look at everything I gave you, and yet you had to steal what you did not have and what has not been given. Now watch this. What is David's first response? This is key. After this is laid out, what does David say? I've sinned. And what we find from David, and this is what makes him a man after God's own heart, by the way. It's not that David is perfect. It's not that he doesn't sin. It's that he finally understands. I think he understands it earlier. I think he forgets it. I think he remembers it here. God loves me deeply. And I've got nothing left to hide. I've always wondered, like, what's the difference between David and Saul? You remember Saul, who came before David. Saul does some bad stuff, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's any worse than what David has done here, right? Saul offers inappropriate sacrifices. Saul does some bad stuff. What is the difference? The difference is this. When Saul is approached by Samuel and Samuel says, Saul, you have disobeyed God. Saul makes excuses. Saul hides. He tries to avoid the penalty and keep his reputation. He says, look, Samuel, why don't you just go up and offer the sacrifice with me? Let's just pretend everything's okay. Let's stand before the congregation. Nobody will know. And Samuel says, no, Saul's going to take away. I mean, God's going to take away the kingdom. The difference between Saul and David is not that one is good and one is bad. That may surprise you. The difference is that one is willing to come before the Lord and confess and receive forgiveness. And one hides. And I want to be clear here. This passage is not saying that to go to heaven, you have to confess certain things or catalog your sins or do something right. It's not at all. Eternal life is a free gift for those who believe that Jesus died and rose again. Absolutely. What this is talking about, though, is our ongoing relationship with God. The thing that separates those who know him well, who live in his blessing, who live in his light, from those who don't, often is this willingness to say, I, I've sinned, and to receive restoration from God. Look at how David puts it in Psalm chapter 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. 
1 John 1, 9 puts it a different way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'll never forget several years ago, I was talking to a fellow minister who had been caught in sexual sin. He had lost his job. His family was on the rocks because of it. And I remember sitting in the room with him and and I was praying for him and I said, uh, you know, how are you doing? How are you feeling right now? And it was interesting what he said to me. He said, uh, you know, I'm sad. I'm sad about the loss of my job. I, I have a lot of work to do in my family. But he said, for the first time in years, I feel this sense of relief because the secret isn't hidden anymore. Things that we hide have power over us. Things that are out in the open can't control us anymore. I don't know if you ever were in a situation, maybe as a kid, where your mom or your dad says, you know, hey, go, go clean your room. Get it really clean. What did you do? Well, if you did what I did, you, you took everything and you, you shoved it under the bed, right? Maybe in the closet, right? And so they come in and it looks great until they open the closet, right? And they're buried. You've got to call the jaws of life or whatever to get them out of your room, okay? Think about that interval, though, from the time you did that to the time it was discovered. You knew you hadn't done it right, right? If someone really said to you, hey, did you clean your room? You might say yes, but you might not look them in the eye while you said it, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's clean, right? Someone asks you today, are you walking in the light of God's holiness? Could you look him in the eye and say yes? If not, it's time for confession. Hiding will always allow sin to control you. Dallas Willard says this, it is said that confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. And a bad reputation makes life more difficult in relation to those close to us. We all know. But closeness and confession force out evil doing. Nothing is more supportive of right behavior than open truth. If you don't know this, everybody in this room is a sinner. Everybody in this room. Uh, I'm 37 years old. I'll tell you how old I am. I don't announce my age that often, but I'll tell you. That's how old I am. And I will tell you this, that there are sins that I struggled with when I was 18 that are still a temptation for me today. Most of them. Just like you, I'm a human being who struggles with pride, greed, lust, anger, all of those things. But as I've gotten older, here's what I've come hopefully to recognize is that even in my sin, there's nothing I can say that God doesn't already know and that prevents him from loving me. Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Once you get that, once you wrap your mind around that, then you won't be afraid to go to a brother or a sister or somebody in community and say, I've sinned and I'm struggling with this sin and I need your prayer. And now is the time to do that before the consequences multiply and multiply. What separates those who walk with God for a lifetime from those who hit spiritual disaster is this willingness to be open and say, I need your help, God. And then go to the community and ask for help and confess sin. Repentance and confession leads to restoration, right? So some of us, you know you're hiding. You know you are. There's something that you're thinking of right now in your life. 
that you're hiding. You've never told anybody. And the message of the life of David is that restoration comes when you're willing to be open and say, okay, I trust that God loves me. I trust that everybody around me is struggling with sin. I'm not going to hide. I'm going to seek the forgiveness and restoration that comes from getting it out in the light. It doesn't mean you've got to stand up in front of a group like this and list off a catalog of your sins. But it does mean you need to have a couple people in your life who know you, whom you trust, and with whom you can really share these things. Uh, we talk about accountability groups. They're really only as good as your willingness to tell the truth. And if we're honest, most of us, sometimes we lie, don't we? Because it's uncomfortable to tell the truth about ourselves, even to ourselves. And yet, restoration comes when we come before God and others and we say, you know what, I've sinned and I need forgiveness. Last word I'll say before uh, the band comes back up is this, that uh, you right now are setting those patterns. Are they patterns of driving out those things that draw you away from God and embracing those things that draw you close to him? Setting disciplines in your life of reading his word worshiping with the community, studying his word with others, and then seeking a group that will pray with you, care for you, with whom you can tell the truth about who you are so that we don't end up in this kind of a cataclysm and this kind of a disaster, but we live in the light of God's love and holiness and know him better each day until the day we meet him. Let's pray, and we'll worship some more. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, It convicts us, it convicts me, because uh, even as somebody who has tried to walk with you for some time, I I often want to hide. I want people to think well of me. I, I, I know that all of us do. We want to preserve our reputation, and it's true that confession, while good for the soul, is often bad for our reputation, and we want to be thought well of. And so I pray that you would protect us from that need to be approved of and know that you already approve of us. That in Jesus Christ, you approve of us and you love us and you want to give us more and more and more than we deserve and have ever earned. You already have. So I pray we wouldn't hide anymore. I know there are men and women in here who, uh, even today, they need to find a friend, a pastor, counselor that they can share things with and acknowledge their sin and seek your forgiveness and restoration to walk closely with you. We thank you, God, and we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.